Hey guys, this is Jeff Stanek with Figured Out Baseball. I've uh, got a great Figured Out Baseball podcast today. I'm very, very excited to have Johnny Cardenas on the podcast. He is the head coach at Stephen F. Austin uh, Division One School in Nacogdoches, Texas. Uh, pretty pumped to have Coach Cardenas here with us. Um, I'll give you a background on him so you know a little bit about where he came from and what he's done before we get into questions, uh, just to let you get to know him a little bit better. He is actually uh, a was born in Juliet, Illinois, though he is an Amarillo, Texas native. Uh, he played started his playing career at Seward County Community College in 1989. He moved on from there to play at TCU, where he was an all-conference player. In 1993, he was named a team MVP and was also an academic All-American. That year, 1993, he was selected in the 46th round of the Major League Draft by the Seattle Mariners. He played professionally from 1993 until 1998 as a part of the Mariners, Rangers, and White Sox organizations. Also spent one year there in independent ball. Uh, going into his coaching career, he is now in his entering his 12th season as the head coach at Stephen F. Austin. He is the all-time winningest coach uh, at SFA with 286 career wins. He has coached 11 of 21 draft picks in the history of the school. He spent five years as a high school coach before he got into the college ranks uh, in Texas and Oklahoma. He had a very decorated high school coaching career before jumping into the college ranks. In 2006, the spring of 2006 was his first year in college. He was actually hired as, the, as an assistant coach and recruiting coordinator at Stephen F. Austin. In 2009, he was promoted to, the, to be the head coach. 2010, his second season as the head coach, the team won 34 games. They went 20-12 and 12 in conference that year. That year, Coach Cardenas was named as the conference coach of the year, the first coach ever from Stephen F. Austin to win that award. The very next year, 2011, the team set the school record by winning 37 games. They went 20-13 and 13 that year in conference as well. Uh, they had a six-round draft pick that year. That player was also named conference player and hitter of the year. Also was named conference newcomer of the year. First player in Southland Conference history to win all three of those awards. That player was also an All-American that year. In 2013, uh, the team had Hunter Dozier taken eighth overall by the Kansas City Royals. You might have heard of that guy if you watched some baseball. He was the first ever player uh, drafted in the first round from Stephen F. Austin. He was the highest major league draft pick ever out of the Southland Conference. That year, Dozier was named conference player and hitter of the year. Uh, was no surprise, was an All-American. He left Stephen F. Austin as the all-time leader in hits and doubles. Uh, Dozier was the fifth player taken in the last five years uh, of the Major League Draft out of Stephen F. Austin that year in 2013. Uh, Jumping ahead to 2019, the team had a pitcher that was named Conference Newcomer of the Year. He was the third player in the last four years named, named Newcomer of the Year in the conference from Stephen F. Austin. That pitcher was also named a first-team all-conference player, the first pitcher ever from Stephen F. Austin named first-team all-conference. Uh, that pitcher also set the <clears throat> single-season strikeouts record. And 2019 was the first time in eight years that Stephen F. Austin had two players drafted in the same draft. They had a 20th rounder and a 24th rounder last year. Uh, going into this 2020 season, again, this will be Coach Cardenas' 13th, I'm sorry, 12th year as the head coach at Stephen F. Austin. Coach, really appreciate you being here with us today. Jeff, I appreciate you guys having me on, and I uh, appreciate everything that you're doing to further our sport with the Figure Out platform. Uh, man, I tell you what, it's, it's, it's a wealth of information at a time when, you know, our sport is really moving in the right direction, and, and I applaud you for doing what you're doing uh, as a coach. I just want to tell you thank you for that. Thank you. That, that means a great deal. Um, 
we've worked hard to put together a platform that is not only free for kids, but um, every coach on the website is either a college or pro coach or working with the college or pro organization. Uh, we're really trying to have a platform where people can just trust the information that they're getting. And, um, you know, there's a lot of really good stuff out there that you can find on Twitter or, or yeah. YouTube or whatever it is. There's a lot of crap out there as well. So we're trying to make it <laughs> yeah. a little bit easier for people to find the good stuff. Yeah, well, you're doing a good job, and we appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. And these podcasts are a great way for people to learn as well. So we sincerely appreciate you being here with us uh, to start this. Um, I, I usually like to start with things that kind of stand out from the bio. And obviously your playing career is something that's really cool. I think a lot of guys don't get to experience things like that. But I'd actually like to ask you just about your college uh, coaching career. You have spent your entire college coaching career at one school, which very few people do. Uh, myself, I, I didn't coach in college for, for that long, but I was at five different colleges. And uh, and it wasn't because I didn't want to stick around anywhere, but it was because uh, there were either better opportunities at higher levels that came up mm -hmm. or, you know, you're a lot of times, you know, co as coaches, especially at lower levels, aren't making enough money and they, they really yeah. move somewhere where they can make a little more and the only way to do it is to go to a different college. So, uh, sure. for, you know, for better or for worse, I moved around a good bit. Uh, you have not done so. What What is it about Stephen F. Austin that keeps you around? Well, one thing, man, is I really feel like it, it, it's a good fit. And, and, and I'm a firm believer that, you know, God's going to put you in the places where you can best, you know, suit him and best serve him. And, and I just think I was uh, fortunate enough that uh, God put me in this position where uh, it's a great fit as far as my personality and the school's personality. Um, I've had nothing but uh, complete support from the community, uh, from our athletic directors. I've had two in my time span here. Uh, both of them have been very, very supportive and favorable of what we do out here on the baseball field. And, uh, man, it's, it's just a great place to be. It's a great place to raise, uh, you know, children. Uh, you know, and in a day and age, like you said, where coaches are, are flying around from one team to another, uh, you know, I feel really, really proud that I've been able to make a mainstay here at SFA and very, very proud of the steps that we've taken as far as the program is concerned. But I wouldn't be able to do it without, you know, first the help of, uh, of my wife and my family. Uh, you know, my wife makes a lot of sacrifices and, 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 and known throughout the city as uh, Coach Cardenas' wife rather than Natalie. And, uh, <laughs> you know, she, she takes that very well, and, and she does a great job of, of, of helping me uh, uh, and has done a great job of helping me build this program to where it is. Um, I just can't say enough about what the, the community does for us and, and how they support us uh, from, from small things like, you know, uh, just saying hello, coming over and meeting our players, the big things like setting up, you know, uh, meet and greets with players and those kinds of things. So uh, it's just a great fit for me. It fits my personality. And as long as they'll allow me, I'll definitely be able to stay. I'll stay here for sure. You say that the community and the school uh, are a good fit for your personality. Tell us a little bit about uh, just what people might find there if they were to visit the school. You know, I've never been to Stephen F. Austin. If I were to come down there, what would I, what would I expect? I guess why? Why do you feel like it's a good fit? You know, what do you find down there that is a good fit for you personally? Well, sure. I mean, first of all, we're in the middle of East Texas, and, you know, there's a, there are pine trees that encircle the campus, encircle the baseball field. Um, the setting is, is, is a very beautiful setting, first and foremost. Uh, you know, to be in the middle of the piney woods and, and, and to have uh, 
the ability to, to, to get out in the woods anytime you want to, go hunting, go fishing, you know, that fits with, with what we try to do here and, and the kind of players that we try to bring in. You know, here we tell guys all the time in the recruiting process, and this isn't a, uh, a big, you know, big city type environment. This is a blue collar, grind it out, and, and you got to want to be here. Uh, this is not like, uh, uh, you know, a, a big city where you're going to get to go and eat at the finest restaurants and those kind of things. I mean, here it's a chicken fried steak down at Dolly's, and hey, man, you better be good with that because that's kind of how it is right here. So it's really plain vanilla uh, is what we like to say. If you're a plain vanilla player, uh, you're going to fit in well with this plain vanilla coaching staff. You're going to fit in plain vanilla w- with this town. And when I say that, I say that, you know, uh, hoping that everybody knows that vanilla ice cream is my favorite type of ice cream. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not much on the, 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 the flair and those kinds of things, and, and this fits my coaching style. Uh, it, uh, the community fits uh, my coaching staff, and, and invariably it, it, it fits the recruits that, who come here and stay here. Coach, you're talking to another guy whose favorite ice cream is plain vanilla, so there we're go. on the same page there. It should be a there good podcast go. then. There you go. There you go. <laughs> how much, uh, when you're going through the recruiting process, I mean, you, you kind of answered this, but how, how upfront are you about that with kids, even before they come to campus? Like this, you've got to know what this fit is. Before you come here, you, you've got to know that. And I'm asking you that in a way, uh, you know, for people that are listening to this that may have kids that are going through the recruiting process, either as a coach or even the parent of a co- uh, parents of a, of a player or players themselves listening to this, just to kind of help them to do some, you know, to do their homework uh, before they would go, were, go, were to go through it. How much do you think that impacts, you know, whether or not this is going to be a good fit for a kid, just kind of knowing the area and what it's going to be like and the fact that you can go hunting and fishing anytime you want and it's not a big city environment. How important is that compared to just recruiting a guy strictly based on baseball? You know, that, first and foremost, I think that's what you kind of look for. you got to look for a guy who can play the game. I mean, when, when people say, well, we try to recruit character and we try to recruit a certain kind of fit, those kinds of things, I mean, that's all well and good. But if you're recruiting a bunch of kids that can't play but fit your culture, well, you're not going to be very good. I mean, I think first and foremost, you got to recruit kids who have talent. But in the recruiting process, to go back to what we were talking about initially, in the recruiting process, we make sure that we talk to those guys knowing full well we try to be as open and transparent in the recruiting process as possible because what we don't want to do is we don't want guys to show up and on that first day or that first week of practice and that first month of, uh, of there not being very much to do here other than baseball, hunting, fish, hey, man, those guys going, man, this, this place is boring. I mean, I, we try to make sure that our guys understand what they're getting into. We try to make sure that our guys know uh, the level of uh, culture that, that, is, that is expected here, and we try to make sure that those guys – understand that if you're looking for glitz glamour if you're looking for being on the front page of a, of a you know of the houston chronicle hey man you're probably in the wrong spot you know and so we try to we try to recruit those guys and i think that fits really well with what we try to do because our our deal is here we, we i preach to my staff all the time you know we have to overachieve um if you're if you're not willing to overachieve then you're not going to be a, 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 a valuable member of our staff I think our staff does a great job of bringing in guys who are fringe guys who say, hey, you know what, we can offer this guy right now being a mid-major and we can develop this guy to where uh, we think he can compete against some of the bigger schools in the nation. I think that's what we have to do. And, and, and I think when you, when you recruit with that idea in mind and you recruit with trying to make that peg fit in the hole, I think you, you end up now, we're going to miss. That, that's everybody. I think everybody misses. You know, you miss on attitude, you miss on culture, you miss, you miss on, on, on how a kid uh, can help you. 
But for the most part, I think if you do it the way we do it and you're up front with them and honest, I think you have a better chance of heading off any of those problems as they come down the road. I mean, just to be 100% open and honest, man, college is difficult on freshmen. College is difficult on transfers because it's a, it's a change in the way they do things. And sometimes it's a culture shock. And if you haven't developed some kind of rapport and been honest with those kids, then they become just a big lie to them and they become disenchanted. And, and I think in that point, you get guys who are ready to transfer immediately. Um, we do the best we can at trying to be honest with guys and, and let them know what their specific roles are, what we expect them to do specific, specifically for our team. And sometimes our goals and our, and our expectations don't meet theirs and, and, and guys feel like, you know, compelled to kind of move on. And that's part of the process. But what you hope is you hope that guys are, you know, uh, thankful and welcoming of you being honest with them. And now they can get in your program and say, hey, man, this is how I knew it was going to be. I can change my role, but this is my role for right now. Can you give me some examples of the honesty that you share with kids? Um, and you can take me through any part of the recruiting process that you want, but maybe, you know, are there things that you feel like are really important to be honest about before they get on campus? Or is that more once they're on campus and you get a chance to evaluate them when they're on your field and your uniforms? Is that where the honesty kind of comes in to kind of evaluate where they're at when they're on campus? Like, you know, when is that? Can you give me some examples of just what you mean? Because yeah. that seems like it's probably something that that not every program emphasizes as much as you do. Yeah. So here, here's what we do. We have 20, 20 questions that we have printed out for, for our, uh, our parents and our, and our recruits. And what we do is, is we have found over the last, you know, uh, 10, 12 years that these are the questions that guys ask the most often. And so what we do is we try to have those questions answered. Um, and, and it goes all the way from uh, housing to what the scholarship offer is going to be, how scholarships are awarded, um, basic needs that the kids have as far as tutoring and, and, and uh, you know, care and prevention of injuries to strength and conditioning. And we sit down with those guys and we tell them word for word, what to expect from our program and, and, and we take a lot of pride in you know and this is and this is something where our sport has kind of gotten a little sideways on we take a lot of pride on not overextending our offers you know everybody has 11.7 scholarships that's all we have and and, and i think there are some there, there's becoming a common practice where guys are overextending that 11.7 with the idea that they can work back you know, I think if you're doing that, then you're not really being honest with the kid. I, I, you know, for me, if we offer you a scholarship, you know, I've been here for 14 years, and in those 14 years, I've only had to call one kid back and tell him, hey, man, we, didn't, we don't have your scholarship. You know, we, we overextended ourselves. I made that mistake early on in my career, and that kid ended up leading our conference, playing against us and being the leader, leading hitter in our conference. And so real quick, I thought, you know what, we can't do that. That's just not the way to do business. One, it's, I, I, I think it's on the border of being unethical. And two, I think it's just the situation where you set yourself up for a kid to do that, to be ex extremely fired up to play against you and to come in and try to, and try to beat you. So I don't think that, 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 that there's any uh, early, too early to start being honest with players. I think you get at their parents in here and you tell them exactly what you – what you think they can fit into your program and what their specific role is. And I think as long as you're being honest with them, I think you have a chance. I know a lot of times that guys say, man, I really want this kid. And so you may tell a kid something that you think he wants to hear. But I think if you're telling people everything that they want to hear, then I don't think you're doing the recruiting process the service that it deserves. I, I, for me, 
Are we going to tell people some things that they want to hear? Yes. But we're also going to tell them exactly what we expect and what's going to go down because, oh, again, I don't want anybody waking up and going, man, I really thought it was going to be this way, and this is not how it's going to be. So I, I think the recruiting process starts early. I think as soon as you make contact with somebody, I think you're open and honest and upfront with them. I think when people ask you, hey, Coach, what, is my, what do you think my role is, I think it's in your best interest to, to, to be honest with them. And I'm going to tell you, we've had some kids in here that we told them, hey, we think you're going to be a walk-on. We had one a couple of years ago that we said, hey, you're going to be a walk-on. He came in as a walk-on. I said, you're going to be a first baseman. He, you know, played first base a little bit for us. And somebody got hurt in left field. We put him out in left field. He ended up being an All-American. So, I mean, he, he knew full well what he was running into that spring semester, that fall semester. And I think that allowed him to just kind of relax and go compete and, and, and trust us. You know, whenever you're talking about the recruiting process, I think that bleeds right into the coaching process. That if you haven't established some sense of, of, of honesty early, in the recruiting process, then how can you expect a kid to trust you when you're talking about, hey, man, we're going to make a tweak to your swing? Well, I mean, you've already lied to him. So why, what, what, what interest or what vested interest does he have in listening to you at that point? It's a really interesting point um, just to create that relationship right away where a player can trust what they're hearing from you. I think that's, that's, uh, it's so important, probably more important than a lot of people realize in this process. Yes, sir. Um, you mentioned that you talk about what you expect from players. Do you mind sharing that? Is that something that you that you don't mind sharing on a podcast like no, this? Like, what do you? I, no, I don't mind at all. What do you expect from players at Stephen F. Austin? Well, we expect you one to go to class. I mean, that's that. You know, I tell our kids all the time: you could be the worst recruit we've ever had here. You could be the the, the worst person we've ever put on our roster, but you can get up and go to class. I mean, that takes absolutely zero talent is good get up go to class because in the end i mean that's what you're you're, you're trying to get an education here um if you if, if and i tell them make no bones about it you're here to play baseball but you're also here to get an education and, and i think those two go hand in hand we we don't we try not to prioritize that stuff uh but what we try to do is we try to tell them one you're going to go to class I and mean, that's going to be the, the 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 you know the step number one uh number two is you're going to be where you're supposed to be whenever you're supposed to be there. Um, in other words, if you if you have tutoring at, at, at you know 8 a.m., we expect you to be there at 7:30, ready to go. Uh, and so, those are the two rules that we kind of really stick by. It, it, it's go to class, be where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there. And then the last thing is it, it is just keep an attitude of humbleness when we come to the baseball field. Because for us, the hardest thing is is nobody recruits a kid that struggled in high school. Nobody recruits a kid that, that, that struggled at the JUCO level. You're recruiting guys who had success. And when you recruit guys who've had success, they're very resistant to change. I was, you were, everyone is. I mean, if I'm successful at what I do and somebody comes in and says, hey, I know you've been successful, but I know the way that you can be more successful, I mean, you're a little bit, you're skeptical at to some point, and I think that's where that, that trust comes in. I think if you develop that trust that those guys say, hey, I think Coach knows what he's talking about. I think Coach believes in what I can do, and I think Coach is here to help me. And so at that point, you know, stay humble in your preparation. Uh, I heard a quote the other day from 
Luis Ortiz, who's a good friend of mine at Texas Rangers, the hitting coach, and he said, stay humble in your preparation for the game because if you don't, the game is going to humble you. I mean, that's, that's exactly what's going to happen. Uh, so if you, if you can stay humble, put your ego aside, understand that, you know, what we're here to do is try to make you the best player you could possibly be. If you're going to class and you're where you're supposed to be, when you're supposed to be, I don't think that anyone ever had a problem with being part of this program at that point. That's awesome. Really good. I, I, I just, I like hearing from coaches, things like that. I think it's so important for people, anybody that's listening to this podcast, to hear how important those things are. Um, and, and you didn't talk a whole lot about things that are happening on the field. It was mostly just about, you know, we are, we're going to be people of good character with, you know, with good habits and, and trying to, uh, as coaches, develop people that are going to be successful when they leave your program. Um, you, you mentioned just about several times now about building the trust with your players and that way when it's time to make a change of any kind, when you want to make an adjustment to a swing, they're open to it. Like you said, people are resistant to that when they've had success. And even if you yep. feel like you can take them to the next level, it's still something that it requires a lot of trust. Um, sure. are, are you under the mindset that you want a guy to fail a little bit before you make a change and almost come to you and say, I'm not having as much success as I should is it time to change something or do you, you know, do you maybe take your, the fall, a guy's first fall on campus and let him go through the fall before you make any changes? Or do you, you know, do you have a a kind of a a standard rule on that talking for like a young coach out there listening to this? Because the, I don't know if you were this way or not, but I certainly was, especially when I first started coaching, I wanted to, I would see a guy do something I didn't like and I'd want to change him the first day I saw him as opposed to kind of letting him, giving him some time to figure out, <laughs> let him figure out on his yeah. own that he needed to do it. What's your, what's your take on that? I'll give you a great story about that. Um, my first year as the assistant coach here at SFA, um, I was the hitting coach uh, and uh, recruiting coordinator. And at the time, we had recruited a guy by the name of Stephen Hill, who was a uh, junior college All-American. He had 25 home runs. His uh, – his sophomore season at Eastfield Junior College uh, down there with Coach Martin, who does a phenomenal job, by the way, uh, recruited him uh, because he's a great hitter and came in the first fall, and he had a very uh, atypical uh, type of swing. And uh, first couple of weeks, he comes in, and I'm like, hey, man, I know you had a lot of success at the JUCO level, Uh, I know, uh, you know, you hit a lot of home runs, but let me show you kind of what I think we need to do for you to be successful at this level. And Steven, being the the guy that he was, uh, was very coachable. And he said, Coach, okay, uh, sounds great. What do we need to do? Let's show up, work early. We worked early. And in the first couple of inner squads, I don't think he got one hit. (laughs) Uh, He was – really struggling to see the ball, uh, didn't feel comfortable at the plate, and uh, asked me one day if he could have a meeting with me. And I said, yeah, sure, come on. Come on to my office we'll talk about it. Because I'm thinking, hey, we're going to talk about his swing. We're going to talk about the things we've been working on, you know, and I'm going to try to keep him positive about what's going on. And he sits down and he says, Coach, he said, I gotta, I'll make a deal with you. And I said, okay, what do you want to do? He said, Coach, let me hit the way I've always hit for two inner squads. If I'm not successful, I'll go back to what you want to do, 
no questions asked. Now, here's the thing. Not only had I developed trust in him or him and I, it was, it, it was reciprocated because I felt like, hey, you know, he gave me an honest effort. You know what? I'm going to, I'll give him an honest effort. Okay, fine. I said, okay, fine. Thinking as a young coach, man, it's all going to play out and I'm going to come out looking like a, smelling like a rose. You know, I, I just knew this is going to work. This is going to, there's no way this fails. There's no way. So I said, yeah, go ahead. So knowing that that next inner squad, he's going to be facing our top two pitchers. Awesome. Let's go. This is going to be great. I'll have this kid's ear the rest of the year. He'll never, he'll never doubt me again as a hitting coach. He goes out there in the next two inner squads, and I think he hit like four home runs in between the two games and, and the two inner squads. <laughs> so after the two inner squads, I go over to him and I said, son, I just want to tell you that you have taught me how to be a better coach in the last two days. And if you feel comfortable hitting that way, you go ahead and roll with it. And so he ended up being an All-American. He ends up getting drafted. And, you know, we still laugh about that story to this day. I mean, he was, he was a phenomenal hitter. And, and, and to answer, it's a long way to answer your question. But I definitely think you got to let guys fail. You have to. Um, I think if, you're, if you jump in there as a young coach and it's your way or the highway, man, I just think you're, just, you're never going to get 100% buy-in from your, from your athletes. But I, but I think if you allow them to go and do what they do best and let athletes be athletes, that one, they're either going to surprise you and figure out how to do it because a lot of athletes always just figure it out, or you're going to get that guy's ear and he's going to be 100% bought into what you're talking about. What a great story. And for any young coaches listening to this podcast or any future coaches, just listen to that story and act like you went through it yourself because you will experience that if you did if, if you haven't yet you're going to experience something like that and i think a lot of people i think almost every coach out there has maybe not quite as an extreme story but but has some kind of a story like that where they just you know they tried to change somebody who really didn't need changing and for you know one way or another kind of came back and in their face yep. and for you to be that humble as a young coach to say you really taught me something here that's i, I think that's wonderful well i'm going to tell you I wasn't humble when it first happened. I was pretty upset. You know, I was pretty upset. And, and you know, we, we, we alluded to it earlier, you know, I go home and my wife is like, well, do you think that maybe you should leave him alone? And I'm like, okay, I know that that makes sense. You know, when somebody points it out to you, you go, yeah, uh, I didn't need your advice, but Hey, that makes sense. You know, maybe I should leave him alone. And I think sometimes as a young coach is you want to prove to everyone that you know, that you know what you're talking about. And listen, you've been there. I've been there. I think the best thing you can do is just develop a relationship with your kids. Try to get them to trust everything that you do. Try to have some kind of, you know, you know, and we live in a day and age where there's analytical data for everything. And if you can have analytical data that shows what you're doing to those kids makes sense. I think you got, I think the buy-in, the buy-in time is much shorter. Um, I think the buy-in time can be much shorter for today's player with all the information that, that can be gathered on a specific swing, on a specific arm, you know, uh, mechanic, whatever. Um, but I think that as a young coach, you, you just got to understand 
that there's more than one way to skin a cat and, and your way is not necessarily the, the, the only way. And I say that now being a head coach now here at SFA for, for the many years that I've been here. But yeah, I think if the, the quicker you can learn that lesson, I think the more fun you're going to have with your kids. I think the more, uh, you know, fruitful your career will be. And I think the residual of that is I think you're going to be able to win some games. Always comes back to that, right? You're always trying to – everything you do is trying to win. And figuring yes, out sir. the exact right formula to get there is not always that easy. Uh, yes, sir. You mentioned early on that at, at a place like SFA, over, overachievement is something that needs to be uh, – it needs to be a priority. You, you really, and I think most ma- most mid majors are probably this way to a point, at least in one aspect or another. But you need to you need to find players that either other other schools aren't that interested in, and you see something other players don't, or you need to find a way to really get the most out of most everybody when they come on campus. Um, you said you talk to your assistant coaches about that. That's something that that is sort of an expectation there is to overachieve. Can you give me? Uh, maybe kind of a formula that that needs to happen in order for overachievement to, um, you know, to be something that is that's a, a regular thing with your program. Does that mean does that mean going out to see more games and, and scouting more kids? Does that mean doing something different when they're on campus as far as uh, the coaching and the relationships? You know, what exactly needs to happen in your opinion for overachievement to uh, to be a regular thing within your program? I think overachievement starts first in the recruiting process. I think a lot of guys uh, recruit and look at kids based upon what somebody else says. Uh, you've been there, I've been there in the stands, and you see a kid that you kind of like at shortstop, but your buddy over here at uh, XYZ University says, you know, I really don't like that kid. That kid doesn't play well. He doesn't move well. And all of a sudden you go, oh, yeah, I see that. Instead of just really making that decision on your own, I tell my guys all the time, if they want to get information from other scouts, if they want to get information from other recruiters, that's great. But in the end, you need to be the one who, who makes that decision. And I don't know how other universities do it, of course, because I've only been at this university, but I give my guys 100% leeway uh, and responsibility in signing a player. If, if they go and watch somebody and they say, Coach, I want to offer this guy. It's never a, nah, I don't think we need to do that. Let me see him first. Uh, I think, you you know, it, again, it goes back to trust. I think you have to trust your, your assistants to do their job. Uh, I think you have to allow them to get the players that they want because nothing's worse, and you know this as a recruiter, uh, nothing's worse than you to say, hey, man, I really like this guy, Coach. I think he can help us. And you're really high on him, and the coach says, well, I really need to see him first. And then he goes and sees him, and, man, I just really don't like him. I don't like the way he does this. I don't like, it's almost a crushing blow as a recruiter. And now you start to second guess what you're looking at, and you're going, man, am I really cut out for this? Is this really what I need to be doing? And am I doing this correctly? And I never want my guys out there recruiting, you know, scared. I want those guys out there aggressive. I want those guys seeing as many games as they can because I think if you're going to try to overachieve, you, one, like you said, you have to be able to see as many games as possible. That's, that's the main thing. Then the second thing is is you have to give those coaches the ability to make mistakes. Like, hey, we miss. Everybody misses on recruits. I don't think there's a school in America that every one of their recruits are, you know, dead ringers. You miss. But I think if you allow those guys to bring those in, I mean, if I put that question to you and I said, okay, you have two players to work with this year, one that I picked 
and one that you're passionate about, which guy are you going to really work on? You're going to really work on that guy you're passionate about because you want that guy to succeed because he's your guy. And that's, that, 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 that's what you got to do with your coaches is you just got to allow them to pull in the guys they want to because and I tell them all the time, hey, man, if you're passionate about him, bring him in. Bring him in and work your tail off to make him as good as you can. And I think any time you do that, you're kind of starting in a, in a position where maybe you give your guys a chance to overachieve, not only as coaches but also as recruits. And then the last thing is I think you have to hire a staff, and I think you have to have a coach, a coaching staff that just stays busy. They just get it, you know. Um, we're not at a place where we can show up, let our kids take five rounds of BP, and call it a day. We're just, that we're, we're just not those guys. You know, what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to find innovative drills. We're going to have to create drills. We're going to have to uh, go to the ABCA and steal some drills. We're going to have to go on Twitter and steal some drills from, you know, guys like Figure It Out Baseball. Uh, and, and we're going to have to do things like that to try to get as innovative as possible because if anything kills progression, it's being stale. If you keep it innovative, you keep it interesting, those kids are listening, and if they're listening, you've got a chance for those guys to move forward. And that's all you're looking for is you're looking for those guys to move forward just an inch or two, and that's where overachieving starts to begin. Awesome. Really good answer. Um, I have a couple of different directions to go from there. Um, okay. But I'm just going to, I'm going to start with kind of where you ended up, ended up there. As far as just coaching players when they're on campus, um, are you, you kind of, you kind of alluded to this, but, but just, let's just talk about hitters. Uh, you know, you were a hitter, you were a catcher. Um, I imagine that's, I'm sure you probably dabble in everything, but that's, you know, probably uh, I would assume your passion or where you spend a lot of your time. When you're coaching whatever position you're coaching, how much are you uh, a drills guy? How much how much time do you and your coaches spend on drills to kind of um, establish mechanics and things like that? Do you want that you want in players as opposed to uh, just kind of letting guys swing and get a feel for things? Or uh, you know, let me let me just start there. How, how much? How much time do you spend on either of those things, kind of creating a feel for guys as opposed to, to, sure. to real work that really hammers into mechanics? Sure. And, and, and let me answer that question by, by first addressing there, our, our sport is starting to – we're at a crossroads. And it just seems like you're either an analytic guy or you're a feel guy. Uh, you're a data-driven guy or you're a feel guy. You know, uh, and I'm going to tell you, man, for the longest time, uh, I, just like a lot of coaches, I was very resistant to, you know, a guy telling me on paper what I needed to be doing with my right fielder. You know, and I, it, it, took me, it took me a while. It took me a while, and, and, and I'll, I'll give credit to, to some of my assistant coaches who've been here who tried to help me make that change. I've come now to the, to the idea that as a baseball coach and as a baseball community, we need to be a lot more inclusive of each other than one or the other. I think you need to be a guy that, okay, the data is going to tell you something, and that's great, and we're going to work on that. We have the blast motion, motion sensors. We use a Rapsodo. We use Moda sleeves. We try to give our guys as much information as possible. But in the end, when you put them out there, I can't say, hey, man, just like I did with Steven, hey, man, you're going to hit this way, and the guy say, Coach, that just doesn't feel right. If it doesn't feel right, I mean, what kind of buy-in are you going to get from that guy at that point? 
you know, and, and, you, and you've seen it as a coach. You tell a guy to make a change, you say, hey, man, hit the ball the other way, and he gives you a half-hearted effort at it. You know, and the half-hearted effort that he gives you is just not going to get him to the point where he's going to be successful. And so what you do is, is you try, we try to do, is we try to give that guy as much data or analytical data as possible to show him this is why we're doing this, okay? Now, let's try to get to a point where you feel like that works for you. Uh, so, I mean, to answer your question, man, I, I think if you're a good coach and I think if you're a coach that wants to stay in this game, you're going to have to embrace both sides of the aisle. I just don't think you can be in one or the other. Um, I, I know there's a lot of old old coaches hanging on to, to some antiquated ideas, and I know there's a lot of data, data-driven guys that think the antiquated coaches don't know what they're doing. But I think there's experience to gain from one side, and I think there's information to gather from the other side. And I think if you can, I think if you can function in that middle, not only are you a better coach, but I would I would go so far to say that I think you really give your kids a valuable experience wherever you're coaching or teaching. It's been it's been a couple of years since I've been on the field, but you know the the data was just starting to creep into college baseball when I uh, when I was coaching. We didn't. We honestly, I don't know if there are any teams out there that had Rapsodo or anything like that. You started to see TrackMan at some tournaments that you went to, and like you'd see, you know, spin rate of a ball, and you're looking at each other like, "Well, is that good or I, I <laughs> exactly? Is that a good exactly. number? I don't know what to do with that." Yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> but it seems to me that just like what you said, and I'm, and I guess in, in most things in 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 life, not just baseball, I'm sort of a I'm sort of a guy who's usually in the middle uh, as opposed to extreme one way or the other. And I look at what you can collect with data, um, and I think there's so much really valuable information there, and it takes a lot of the guesswork out. And it's also a way to go to a kid and say, hey, let's try this. And you see some numbers, and you're like, dang, that was pretty good. Like, and the kid sees it, and, and the kid exactly. wants to he wants to throw yeah. harder. And, and, you know, guys on the mound, they want to have tighter breaking balls, and hitters want to hit the ball harder and farther. And, but there's also, just like you said, I think there's a tremendous amount of, of value in a coach who just has a feel for things and has a good eye for things. And, and, just, and, and, and feel in this uh, respect to me is just being able to, to know your players and know when it's the right time to do, to do this or that as opposed to just hammering data. And I, and I think, yeah. and I don't mean to, to take over this part of the podcast, and I'll shut up in a minute and let you, co- let you talk more, but uh, – one of the issues with me about social media for me is that it's social media tends to be very black or white. You either have to be, you're either this coach or you're that coach yeah. and, and, and whoever, yeah. whichever side you're on, like the other side is going to blast you on, you know, you, you make one post that makes you look like one side or the other, and then the other side <laughs> is going to crush you. And it's just, uh, yes. I don't think it's a very healthy yes. thing. Um, well, no. it seems like probably somebody in the middle is probably more likely to have success in the long run. I agree. I agree. And I think what it's done for our, co- for our coaches is, you know, innovation comes because somebody had a weird idea, had a quirky idea on how to do this, that, or the other, you know, and that's how innovation takes, you know, takes a hold or takes uh, effect. But what we're doing is, is we're blasting guys for any kind of innovative drill that they may, hey, man, maybe that helps your guy hit, you know? And now you're trying to impart that to somebody else and say, hey, and then somebody on social media just blasts you and says, well, that's the stupidest crap I've ever seen. The problem with that is 
is that now that person is afraid to share their opinions. If you're a, if, if us as a coaching community are afraid to share, share our opinions on social media because of the backlash from one side of the aisle or the other, then we're, we're, we're stalemating the progress of our sport. And, and when our, when we look up and the popularity of our sports is third and fourth behind football and basketball, maybe that's why, maybe that's why, because innovation is being cycled because everyone's afraid if I put this weird quirky drill out there, somebody may comment and it's going to make me look bad. And I don't think that's that, that we're doing ourselves a disservice amongst our, amongst coaches. No doubt. And I, I see that on figured out baseball a lot. Uh, if you haven't checked out the website, by the way, it's figuredoutbaseball.com. It's free to subscribe. Um, we've got hundreds of videos all from college and pro coaches kind of talking about everything within the game that, that you would want to see. And we had new videos every week. Um, so I, I would encourage you to check it out, whether you're a player, coach, parent, we have something for everybody. Um, a lot of things for everybody actually, but, um, I've seen that with coaches that I've spoken to about creating content that there are some coaches that are just kind of like, you know, I, I just don't know if I really want to put myself out there like that. And it's, um, I'll yeah. give you just one example. I've got a friend who was a position player in college, and he was a hitting coach, infield coach for a long time, and then he transitioned to be a pitching coach. The first time he did it, it was purely out of necessity, and then um, it just was kind of something that stuck. And he, he's, got a, he's got some peers that were really good pitching coaches that he did a ton of homework to be prepared. And But I, I don't know now that he's – I think he's extremely confident with his players, but I don't know that he's confident enough to share in, right, in, in either place yeah. now to share that stuff. And I think he's afraid of, like you said, kind of uh, getting some backlash because especially in pitching, it's, there are, you know, with everything that driveline has done, driveline has been tremendous in a lot of ways for the game, but, but in a way that they've like, they've got like a cult following that like, if you don't do it like this, you are an idiot. You're gonna. Yeah. Your kids yeah. are never gonna be any good. Like you, you know, as a player, yeah. as a player, like don't ever listen to anyone that doesn't do this. And yeah. I, you know, I, I think, like you said, I think it, it sometimes um, lets some coaches out there not be as confident in themselves as they should be, especially when. Yeah. What does it all come down to? It all comes down to your players on the field being successful. And if your players are yes. good, then yes. work it. <laughs> yes. If you if, if if you're a coach at the high school level, and you tell me, coach. You know, I have a kid. I made him do a handstand and hit with his feet, and the kid hit 400. Hey, man, congratulations. Great job. Great job. Hey, we're not going to do that because it doesn't fit me, but, hey, man, great job getting your kid to perform. I mean, I, that, that, that's what we should be about anyway. It, it's, I think too many coaches make it about themselves, you know, uh, and make it about where my way's got to be the right way because I want these accolades and I want everybody to know that I'm the one who came up with this, listen, you know, there were a lot of things invented because somebody had a crazy idea and they were told they were stupid and they were told they were wrong and they stayed after it and they stayed after it. And all of a sudden, here we go. You know, this is something that we use every day now. And people look at it as, man, we can't live without it. Well, I mean, if we're stifling that in our sport, then again, when our sport, popularity falls, then we're going to be the ones to blame for it, not the kids. Great take. Uh, I want to stick, let's stick with, with um, 
just some tech things you guys are doing, uh, some, some data that you're bringing into the program. So you said you guys use Blast, you guys use Modus, you guys use Rapsodo. Um, tell me some of the positives. Let's start with this. Tell me some of the positives that you have found uh, that you now, as, as a guy that maybe is a little bit slow to come to, to sort of accept this into what you're doing with your program, tell me some positives that you've seen that, uh, that your kids and your coaches get from the data collected using these, uh, the different types of tech that, are, that you guys implement on your team. It is a lot more pleasurable to work with athletes who can see the numbers and then you say, okay, this is where you hit the ball. Let's take the rap soda numbers, for, for example. I was a back net line drive guy, and that's what we're going to hit. We're not going to hit anything in the air. We're going to hit down and through the baseball. We're going to hit line drives right back up the middle till the team can't see straight. That's what just, that was our that was our our mantra, our philosophy. We get the rap soda numbers, and I start realizing that if we can manipulate launch angle just a little bit, that we can start to get some doubles out of the deal, and our rate of contact starts to go up, and our swing and miss ratio goes down. And then I start going, well, maybe that makes sense. And I start coaching, and we start coaching. And what we notice is it becomes more pleasurable because we're not trying to beat the kids over their head with something that they don't see. You know, if I tell you you're going to be successful at hitting back net line drives, there's something that you have, there's a faith in there. You have to trust that that's what is going to work or that's what makes you the best hitter or that's what raises your contact rate and your swing to miss ratio to go down. But if I have those numbers, I just show you the numbers. You know, now it's not subjective. Now it's on paper. And now all of a sudden you start going, well, that makes sense from the point of view of, hey, you know, my deal was we wanted to – we swung and missed a ton last year as, as a team. And I go to my hitting coach and I say, hey, we've got to stop that. Well, how do we stop that? Well, when you start doing research, you start figuring out, hey, if we use these metrics, we use this analytical data, and we start coaching to it, then maybe we can kind of curtail that. Now, some of that is in the recruiting process as well, but it makes it more pleasurable because now you're not fighting a kid for something that he can't see. Now he sees it. The fight's over. He believes in it. He buys in. The buy-in rate is a lot quicker. When the buy-in rate is a lot quicker, you as a coach become very fulfilled in knowing that what you're doing for the kid is right. You start to see that smile on the face. You start to see the head nods and, hey, I get it, Coach. I understand what you're doing. I understand what you're talking about. Hey, those numbers don't lie. Coach, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, yeah, tell me more, Coach. Tell me more. Now all of a sudden these kids are going coming to us and saying, Coach, I was doing this last night and I was thinking about this and I was thinking, oh, let's go. Let's talk hitting. Sit down. You know, <laughs> where, where before – I was having to schedule meetings, and they'd walk in my office with their head down going, oh, my God, this one's going to be terrible. You know what I mean? So, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it just has changed the dynamic between the coach and the player. And I think now more than anything, our staff, we try to become facilitators of the information and the drills that could specifically help them, you know, to achieve those numbers as opposed to, hey, man, have faith in me. You know, I'm the shaman who's going to wave my hands over your swing 
and we're going to, I'm the guru and we're going to fix it. Well, you might can get some kids to buy into that because, you know, we, we tell, we tell people all the time, you divide it up into thirds. A third of your kids are going to follow you no matter what you say, just because that's who they are, you know? And then a third of your kids, you're going to have to prove it to them. And then the third of them, you're not going to get to them no matter what you do. So it's that middle third where you make your money as a coach and as a program. If you can get those middle third guys turned your way because of what you've showed them and you've proven to them, now that third that doesn't listen is consumed by the other two thirds and you got yourself a good program. <laughs> awesome. What's the worst thing about the implementation of data into the program? If there is one, what's the, what's the worst thing that comes along with having all this data handed to you? Man, the time it takes. Man, you have to crunch numbers. Uh, you know, we've had to, uh, to, to bring on specific coaches. We've had to bring on specific student helpers to help us comb through all the numbers. And then the other thing of that is, is if you would have told me three years ago that every one of my players would have their cell phone with them out on the field, I would have told you I'm not coaching here. <laughs> you know, but now everybody's got their cell phone because they're immediately checking their numbers. Hey, I want to check my numbers on this. I want to check my numbers on that. And listen, I, I know there's a lot of coaches out there where they'll listen to this and go, that ain't going to be me. Hey, okay, that's fine. I'm just telling you what specifically works for us. And I've made peace with trying to get better. You know, if it's about me and we win, you know, 25 games or, or it's about them and we win 35, hey, man, I'll take the 35. <laughs> I like it. I like that a lot. That's I, I, something that I wish – that I had coached a little bit longer to kind of experience that because I was, I, I loved the data. I loved Moneyball when it came out. Yeah. When I would take long recruiting trips, like driving from Kentucky to like Kansas to watch a junior college game, like I was borrowing um, Moneyball book on tape, you know, I list, like listen yes. to the CD in my car and like trying yeah. to figure out, okay, what can Moorhead State do to become the Oakland A's? Like what is something there I you do? Go. Yeah. And I was the weirdo that, this is this is the truth, and I, I probably have said it on another podcast at some point. But my last year at Moorhead, uh, we were a big junior college recruiting team. Um, that's how we, we turned the program around and kind of how we just maintained success there after I left even. is it's, we, We've always been, uh, you know, a, a junior college team. And Mike McGuire, who's now the head coach at USC Upstate, you know, he was the one that, that really – uh, kind of pushed that, like you know, we're going to be a junior college team. That's how we're going. That's how we're going to get uh -huh. guys in here. Anyway, sure. uh, my last year there, I came up with my own sort of formula as to how I was, which which junior college player I was going to see first. And uh, yeah. like I, I I emailed junior college coaches all over the country. Hey, we're looking for this, this, and this. Like a, a shortstop. A, a you know, we we need pitching right uh -huh. and left, and and we need a, an outfielder that can really hit or whatever it was. And guys sure. responded back. And I made the spreadsheet and came up with my own system of, of how I was going to use their numbers. And basically, I took their numbers from freshman year and then started uh, every week. I'd plug in their numbers from their sophomore year. And I was going by this one particular statistic that I decided was, well, m myself and our pitching coach, who's actually now a uh, pitching coach in the Astros organization, he was also very, very data-driven, um, well, obviously why he ended up with the Astros. Yeah. But he helped me to kind of come up with numbers that were the most important for pitchers and hitters. And then I would like weight them based on the conference, how good I thought their conference was. And was it D, you know, D1, D2, D3 junior college. And that honest to God is how I decided in what order I was going to go see junior college kids. 
my last year there. And I don't know if that worked or not, but like I was that kind of a stat nerd even like before um, that the data was really a big thing. So I, I would have loved to stick around longer and, and kind of have these the tools in my hand that you guys have now. Yeah. I think it's really cool. Oh yeah, oh yeah, it's awesome. It makes your job a lot easier. I, I just because it takes all the guesswork out of it. You know, it's not like I said, you're, you're not you're not guessing and just shooting shooting arrows in the dark and. Believe me, we've done that. Everybody's done that. You know, sometimes you shoot an arrow in the dark and hope you hit something. But, you know, with, with all the technology today, and, and, and I understand because I, I coached. The first job I had was in a, a high school in Oklahoma, 2A high school. And, man, we had no money. And so you have to find ways to, to you know, get to that innovation and, and, and get to that technology that, that you know, you, you have to have a – you know, a cow chip contest where you have a bingo board set up there, and wherever the wherever the cow decides to to relieve himself, whoever that is wins, and you know, and you and you raise money that way. Been there, done that, and so and so you just got to find a way. You got to prioritize kind of what you think is is the best way to develop your kids, and I think there's always ways you can do that stuff. Yeah, let's flip the page a little bit, Coach, for the last uh, few minutes of the podcast here. I just. I want to okay. talk about something a little bit different. Um, you, you mentioned several times since we started this just about the the role that your wife and your family have in, in what you do. And you have three kids. You're married. It sounds like, you know, you've, you've got one of those marriages where you kind of like to spend some time with your wife uh, every now and then. And uh, <laughs> I just kind of want to pick your brain a little bit for people who don't know exactly what the schedule is like. It doesn't necessarily just need to be a baseball coach, but, you know, college coaches of every sort the amount of time you've got to spend uh, at practice or crunching data or as a head coach, you're doing all kinds of other stuff that, that that's off the field type of stuff, fundraising and, and everything else. Um, what, how much does it mean to you to have a family that, that is supportive of what you do? Man, that, that's what allows you to do what you do. Um, if you don't have someone who is constantly uh, okay with putting themselves second behind uh, your sport and, and, and your quest for success, then I, I think, I just think it's going to be a, a fruitless endeavor. I just think that they, the, the wives play a huge role in how good we are. Uh, just because we've talked about before, if you're going to overachieve, then it's really a whole family's got to overachieve. You know, I mean, my, you know, my infield coach is one of the best. Caleb Clowers is one of the best that we've ever had here. And that guy puts in ridiculous hours. And Coach Haynes, who's my my, my uh, recruiting coordinator, he's gone from home several hours, several days. And if those families aren't okay with that, then it it puts a lot of strain on them. And, and now instead of doing their job, they're more worried about getting home. And, and, and they allow me, uh, you know, th- those guys to sacrifice some of their time so that I may have some family time. And, and we try to, you know, we try to do that for those guys as well. But, if you don't have somebody beside your side that's fully understanding of the time and, and, and dedication that it takes, you know, then, then it's going to be difficult for them. And, 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 and I'll just go, go and say that, you know, Michael's wife, Alexis, and Caleb's wife, Erica, uh, they are without a doubt some of the best people you could ever be around, uh, my wife included. Uh, Natalie does a great job of, of just understanding, all three of them uh, doing a great job of just understanding what we're trying to do here. And I think they're fully bought in. I think they're fully bought in into us winning, and I think they're fully bought in uh, in, into us achieving what we need to achieve. And and without them, 
there's no way this thing runs. There's just absolutely no way. Now, if you don't mind me asking, when you met your wife, were you already were you coaching at that point? Like, was that was it sort of like she she married into that, so she that's all she's ever known with you, or were you uh, when I guess when did you when did you? No, that's all. That's yeah, that's all she's ever known. I was a high school coach when we met, and uh, that's all she's ever known. She's all she's ever known is me, you know, trying to pursue this game and chasing around young men, chasing after a white ball, and that's that's just been <laughs> that's just been what we do. You know, that's our identity, and, and, and she's been, like I said, I, I can't say enough of, of the support and dedication that, that she's, you know, uh, given me and allowed me to, to, to be part of this program. And, and without, you know, without their support, none of this happens, man. I mean, all these podcasts and, you know, you get to do these conventions and you talk and you, you get to be, you know, uh, viewed as a big-time Division One coach. None of that happens unless, unless they're okay with it. And you're one of the few coaches out there in the country, especially at the Division One level. To be a Division One head coach uh, as a as a minority is something that you just we don't see a lot of in the game. We don't see enough of in the game. Um, how much time? You know, I guess. Let me ask you first. What's that experience like? Is it something that you feel like you you've had to fight over the years, or something that you feel like you, you've been blessed to be in a in a position that you're in? Uh, can I just ask you about that, if you don't mind? Yes. Yes. I, I'm tell you, man. I'm, I'm I'm really blessed to be, and I think what we talked about earlier, you know, Stephen F. Austin being the best place for me. Um, I think that you know, uh, and, and this is something that I didn't give a whole lot of weight to early on because I just had my head down, was trying to get busy and trying to run the program. But as you get older and you start to realize, hey, man, there's not very many of us. There's not very many minority head coaches at the Division One level, and the fact that you know our sport doesn't necessarily mirror what's going on at the big league level. I mean, that, 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 that's an issue. You know, I, I think our sport is kind of pricing itself out of, you know, the inner city kids playing it. And I think you know, there's a lot of athletes there. It could, it could be great baseball players. And, and the professional leagues or uh, organizations are finding them, but we can't seem to find them at the Division One level. You know, and, 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 and if you look at it, those are the guys who go on to be Division One coaches. And so it's kind of a, you know, a vicious cycle. And I think, you know, I think the ABCA is doing a good job of, of, of trying to promote that with the formation of the, of the new uh, committee that it has, you know, the, the ethnic minority committee that, that they put together that Carrick Jackson is running. Um, you know, I think that's a, a step in the right direction. I still think we have a long way to go. Uh, you know, I, I don't want it to be a deal where, hey, man, your guy's going to get the job strictly because he's a minority. But I think it has to start with the ability to find ways to get inner city kids involved in baseball programs and exposed to college baseball programs much earlier. I think that's a, that, that's a step that we've kind of kind of uh, not taken, and I think that's a step that has to be taken if we're going to improve our sport and we're going to move it forward uh, in the inner cities. We have to be out there and we have to be present. I can't just sit back here in East Texas and expect you know, African-American kids in the Dallas and Houston area to know exactly where we're at. That's just not going to happen. I'm going to have to be, you know, proactive on it. I'm going to have to get out there because here's the thing. I'm very proud. I mean, I'm very, very proud to, to, to be a minority and to be a Division One coach. But I don't want that to be the specific reason why I succeed. I want to succeed because I'm the best man for the job. And I want I want our guys to understand that, hey, if I can do it, you know, the little kid from Amarillo, Texas, you know, where baseball was not a priority. If, if, I can, if I can do that, 
then they can too. And I think anytime you're doing that, man, you're going past the scope of what you are as a baseball coach and more of the scope of why God intended us to be on earth. That's it's a, really a, <clears throat> an amazing outlook. And, you know, for what it's worth, and not to toot our own horn, but one of the reasons one of the reasons that I thought Weird Out Baseball was important to create was because of what you just said. I think that there are a lot of kids in this country and elsewhere even around the world that don't play baseball because baseball prices itself out, like you said. And a lot of it to me is that travel baseball and lessons are so expensive. In addition to the $400 gloves and the $400 bats, there's yep. just, there's a – there, there's a lot. There's a lot that that goes into it, and I think that the kid who doesn't have the resources gets passed up by the guy who does, and the kid who's able to sure. go get lessons, and the kid who's who sure. does play for that travel team. Um, sure. And one of the things that we want to do at Figure It Out Baseball is have the best information possible available to anybody who wants it, and that's why our platform is free. Um, you know, believe me, I thought about I've thought about making it a paid platform. Sure. <laughs> I could be making sure. a whole lot more money than I am, <laughs> um, but it's not what I want. I, I didn't do it yeah. to make for that reason. Make money yeah. from it. I, I did it to try to put information in the hands of people that want it and that wouldn't otherwise have access to it. Sure. Um, so I, I I hope that we're able to reach. Uh, I, I I've talked to recently the RBI program in Pittsburgh, and I, I hope to maybe take a little bit of a bigger role with RBI at some point in the future. Uh, even sure. in different cities or whatever, just to try to reach those kids that, that don't otherwise have access to, like, what we've got on the website, and just like you said. Yeah. Um, so I, I, just, I really appreciate your outlook on that. And, and you know, what else is there to, to do? I don't know. Is there another answer that you feel like that – is there something that college baseball or that high school baseball or travel baseball can get better at to, to kind of help to progress this issue? Yeah, I don't necessarily think it has to do with college baseball. I think it's upon us as minority coaches to make sure that we have a unified voice. I think that's the big thing is because if it's not a unified voice and you've got 15 different opinions coming out of one room, then it just becomes chatter. You know, I think uh, I think formulating the committee with what Carrick's doing uh, and trying to get everybody information on how to become, you know, a Division One coach, uh, how to get your resume out there, how to become a – productive, viable uh, minority candidate, I definitely think that's, that's step one. You, it, it has to be – you almost have to go in reverse. You almost have to talk to the people who are not getting the opportunities and get those guys in line and then talk to the people who aren't given the opportunities because I just think the problem is, is we, we don't educate guys enough as minority coaches. And, and listen, I, I'm just as guilty. I'm not pointing a finger at anybody other than myself saying that I don't do a good enough job of educating local minority coaches and local minority kids on how to get to the Division One level and how to become a Division One coach and what it takes. Um, I think we've got to do a better job of that. Before we can put the blame on anybody, I think we have to take care of our own, our own lawn first. How much do you think a paid third assistant coach would help with that? Um, it's something that, you know, for people that follow college baseball, it's been a debate, a, a very – pretty heated debate over the last couple of years about implementing a third paid assistant. And for anyone that's not familiar with how Division One baseball is structured coaching-wise, you have the head coach, you can have two paid assistants, and as, as, as of this point, your fourth on-field coach to be a volunteer, and those volunteers mm -hmm. are, are legitimately volunteers. They don't have a salary. 
They're making their money from camps and lessons. And, of course, the Power 5 type of school can have camps that are big enough that those guys are getting paid plenty of money. But either even so, they don't have health insurance. Uh, how much do you think the implementation of a third assistant coach would, would just help to bring more minority coaches to the Division One level and, and just at, at more prominent schools around the country? Well, I think that's, that's, that's a huge way we can get some minority coaches in there because I think if you look at our sport, we have the worst player-to-coach ratio of any Division One sport. I mean, it's just it, what we have. You know, 35 to 3, it's just it, – it, I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, I, I made a, a statement to somebody the other day that we were coming home from the ABCA and there was a basketball team that was on the same flight as us coming back from Nashville. And there were more coaches on the flight and more support staff on the flight than there were players. And so now I start to wonder, you know, I mean, I mean, how, how difficult – is it on my guys to have to weed through all that, to have to work at that, to have to know that uh, you are going to have to put in long hours with no help, no reprieve, and then you're depending upon student assistance to help set stuff up. Listen, if you can get a third paid assistant, I think it's imperative for our sport, then yes. Then I think you can open the conversation of, hey, man, now we can get maybe a minority coach in here to kind of help because simple fact of it is, guys aren't going to come for free unless they have means. And it's very, very, I mean, if you're being socioeconomic conscious, you know that those opportunities just aren't going to be afforded to minority coaches. It's, um, I think it's something anybody that's gone through it that has been a coach at any level, any sport, just, uh, you know, those people know better than anybody what the struggle is like, especially as a young coach, uh, just breaking in and, and what these jobs pay. People don't even, people don't realize it. I'm sure I could ask you, uh, you know, what you made when you first started at Stephen at Boston. I know that my first coaching job I made, I made 8000 bucks, and I had three part-time jobs in addition to coaching to just to make ends meet. Yeah. And uh, I was living in a little um, studio apartment in Pittsburgh, and, and it, sure. was, it was fun when I was 22, 23, but not something, not something you can do for very long. That's right. That's right. Listen, my first job here at SFA, I'm the salary that I made was equal to the amount of money that I could make in lessons and camps. And so basically I was <laughs> half of my salary came from camps and lessons. You know, uh, the problem with that is, is when are you going to have family time? You know, you're here, you know, at a mid-major school with no grounds crew, we're here, and when you called me earlier, like I said, I was doing some field maintenance, uh, you know, before the podcast. And so now, as an assistant, you come up here, and you're up here at 9 o'clock in the morning doing field work. You have the full day of practice. Now you're, now you got, hey, man, I got those free lessons. And listen, I had them booked up just like anybody because I needed money, you know. I mean, you got a wife and, and a couple of kids. Hey, man, you got to make money. And so I had those lessons lined up from, you know, Six, six o'clock to 9.30, and it just got to be a point where you just you wear yourself out. And then, and then what, what ends up suffering is your ability to give your kids who you coach here at this university 100% of you because yeah. you're just so exhausted. And if you get that third paid assistant, now maybe, hey, man, maybe you got another guy to kind of shoulder that burden a little bit. You know, you make a little bit more money. Uh, and, and, and I just think, I think we're, in, we're at the crossroads where, if we don't do something like that, we're going to lose a lot of good coaches 
to high school levels, and then if they get into high school level, man, uh, you know, for me, I made a, I, I took a pay cut when I came here as an assistant coach uh, from a Texas high school coach. Uh, I took a pay cut, and the reason I took a pay cut is because I was coaching football, and when I was coaching football, it was allowing me to make a lot more money. <laughs> Three three full time coaches for thirty five guys on a roster. You know, four coaches if you count the volunteer. That's just yep. it's not an easy ratio. I've been on just you know messing around on softball websites, college softball websites, and they've got you know four coaches, five coaches for for whatever twelve fifteen players. Sure. Um, I, I would assume. I, I probably haven't read about this as much as I as I should, but I would assume that part of the a lot of the holdup, and why this why this isn't passing is because baseball is is already you know, probably at it, it, just at the Division One level, probably eighty to ninety percent of the schools around the country, baseball is not a revenue generating sport. It's a sport that loses money. Is that one hundred percent? Is that that's, part of the holdup? Is that, that part? That's the big issue. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's the big issue. Is it, we can't, we just can't generate enough revenue uh, to make money. And and listen, if we're going to start talking about that, I, I, I would venture to you know to to, to bet that those division as we know, one AA football programs and us being one of them, how many of those programs make money? But yet, we're going to have 15 coaches. I mean, I, I just think that it's, you can find the money and you can hide behind non-revenue generating all you want to, but there's a lot of sports that don't generate revenue that, that, that enjoy a better coach-to-player ratio than what we have. You think – and are you an advocate at all of of, um, of moving college baseball to be a summer sport? I know, I know that there's a lot of a lot lot that goes into that, including college summer leagues that are very popular around the country. But I know that's something that Randy Mazie has, sure. uh, as the head coach at West Virginia, sure. has sure. been very adamant about. If we were just a yep. summer sport, because he's in Morgantown, West Virginia. And yep. you know, playing a home game in in March, like nobody's <laughs> gonna want to come out to that, yeah. you know. But yeah. but if yeah. you play a home yeah. game there in June, you probably get a crowd. Or, yeah. Have you thought about yeah. that much, or have, are you yeah. do you think that's I mean, maybe makes, a solution? I mean, he makes a compelling argument. I mean, it's a great argument. Um, I just don't know that you're gonna have a lot of coaches that want to take their entire summer, you know. It, so then it would be a deal where, as a baseball coach, you recruit the entire fall. You know, you work the entire fall to get your team ready. Now you work the entire spring to get your team ready. And then the summer where you can maybe catch your breath a little bit, now that's going to be eaten up with competition. And now you're in a situation where it's going to be a full-time job, full-year-round job for a successful Division One coach. I mean, if that's the route we want to go, I get it. But just understand that that's a whole new can of worms. Do you have any other solutions that you've thought of or you've, you've talked about with your peers or your assistant coaches that you think would help to push this forward to get that third pay assistant? Anything that you think could help? Man, I, I, I don't know. I, I think all you can do is just what we talked about before. I think you just got to keep hammering on it. I think you just got to keep bringing it to the forefront. I think you got to keep that in the NCAA's front mind, I think, because any time that you allow them to kind of not think about it for a little bit, I think it puts you in a position to where you, the legislation is just going to kind of go away. We just have to do a better job of the ABCA and, 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 and coaches associations and head coaches and committees of getting that out there in front of the NCAA to make sure that they understand that this is – and we talk about, you know, student welfare all the time. 
and I'm a big proponent of student welfare, but we can't legislate things and use the, the umbrella of uh, student welfare when it benefits the student only. I mean, this is something that would help, I mean, this is student welfare, but it's gonna help coaches as well. And, then, and, as, and as a result, you end up with better student welfare. I couldn't agree more. I, I think it'd be a tremendous thing for the sport itself. I know that there are probably schools out there that wouldn't be able to afford it, but something I just, I've thought of, I, I don't know if this is, you know, I, I'll probably get crucified in some circles for saying this, but, you know, what if you took away one of those paid coaches from football or basketball that every school seems to have? Um, I know Title IX, you, you've got to have equal, uh, or I don't know exactly what the ratio is, but your your, your men's to women's coaches have to be very sure. very similar. But sure. what if you just took one of those paid coaches from uh, of the you know the fifteen full time coaches me, on a football team? And, you know, let me stop you right there, man. Let me stop you right there, and I'm gonna stop you right. There. I'm gonna tell you why, because I'm I'm a coach in the state of Texas, okay. And you start talking about taking anything away from football in the state of Texas, man. And hey, if this, if I if I get on this podcast and I and I succumb to that viewpoint, I'm liable I'm liable not to have a job come morning. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't but blame I, you. But, but but I understand your point, and I think that I think it's a, it's a point that can be made. But man, I I just I, I don't know what the answer is. I just know that the answer is we you know. Uh, or I don't know what the solution is, but I think that the answer is that we're going to have to just keep this in the NCAA's forefront and just keep pushing for for what we know is right. You would think if there are enough votes on it, eventually it's going to get voted yes. Uh, eventually, and, eventually. And, and eventually coaches. it will. Yeah. Eventually it will. I just hope that it happens in the lifetime where, you know, we don't – we that we affect the most, the most amount of coaches that we can possibly affect in a positive manner. Guys, this is Johnny Cardenas. He's the head coach at Stephen F. Austin, uh, Division One school in Texas, and, and a guy that I've I've just I've really enjoyed getting to know. Um, someone I didn't really didn't know before figured out baseball came along, but uh, I've enjoyed our conversations very very much uh, through the podcast. You've seen this is he's a humble, grounded guy. I, I think a, a real players coach, someone I think would be a pleasure to play for. Maybe I've got to come to practice uh, or a game sometime to confirm that. Come but, on, man. Anytime. <laughs> from come our on. coaches, I've, or from our conversations, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, uh, someone that I think is a great blend of new and old school and, and a progressive guy who just wants to do what you've got to do to get better, which is so healthy for the sport. Um, Coach Cardenas, I, I sincerely appreciate you spending the afternoon with us today and taking the time to be on a Figured Out Baseball podcast. Man, it's been awesome. I've enjoyed it. And if I can ever help you guys or anyone out there, please, Reach out to me via email, text message, or phone, uh, and I definitely will return your your uh, with a response for sure. Thank you so much again, and all the best uh, to the team and, and to your family. And uh, I hope to have you back here. Hope you can be somewhat of a regular guest here, at least on Figured Out Baseball. I just I think you're a tremendous advocate for the game, and would love to keep you a part of this. I appreciate it, brother. Thank you.